나서 So the the talks over the last couple of days have been motivated by the aspiration that we bring these teachings entirely into the present, into our culture, our conceptual framework. And I think there are very strong historical precedents for making that effort, because frankly, it's a lot easier not to. I just teach the text, you know. Um, but the historical precedent is that when we look wherever Buddhadharma has flourished over the last 2,500 years, whether in Japan, Mongolia, Burma, Sri Lanka, India, wherever, it's always been regarded as contemporary. And that is, it was in dialogue with what people believed in these different, you know, their worldview, wherever they were, in whatever century. They didn't feel they were just studying something old. They were studying something that was totally in dialogue with what the people around them thought was true. I think it's always been the case. And so if the Buddha Dharma is going to be flourishing in the modern world, and I don't mean the West, I mean the modern world, then we need to bring it into dialogue, into the framework of what people generally believe, many people believe to be true, and so that it is, the ideal is, utterly authentic, utterly in a way traditional, in the sense of being authentic, and at the same time, and to the same extent, completely contemporary not feeling we're just bringing something out of mothballs, out of the old, you know, trying to preserve something old. So we're finished with that. And so today, my, my little gun here is empty. I got no bullets. <laughs> Nothing. So we can just go to the text with a small preface before we go to the practice, a bit of contextualization now entirely within Bodhidharma. And that is, especially with the last couple of days, you know, when we go into the philosophy and the history and so forth, the conceptual frameworks and all of these kind of issues, physics, black holes, dark energy, and so on, it can seem perhaps interesting, scintillating, but it can also seem to be a bit removed from our daily lives and practical concerns. If that's the way it seems, then we're missing the point, because this is never actually taking the eyes off of our fundamental yearning, and that is to be free of suffering. That's why we're here. That's why we discuss Protagoras and Barclay and you know Hilary Putnam and so forth, because it's all connected in. So let's just address that. Let's just go right now to the marrow, right to the very heart of things, and that is, and let's go right back to the foundational teachings. Why, why is it that we're suffering here? What makes us vulnerable to suffering? Because we all care about that. You know, including the python that was trying to make himself, himself home here. He also didn't want to suffer, and very nicely they didn't harm him when they were, they just, you know, swept him out. It was a very gentle, nice way to go. But we all, we all care about being free of suffering. None of us like it. The trick is to identify actually what are the true causes and what are, what are merely the cooperative conditions. Because virtually anything we know now, even the young, youngest people here, you, won't, you know, virtually anything happening out there to us could trigger unhappiness, disappointment, frustration, anxiety, and so forth. Virtually anything, the sun coming out. Really. <laughs> I worry about that, you know, skin cancer. <laughs> you know, I mean, just anything. Other people, Freud said, just a very brief allusion, Freud said in his civilization and discontents that, well, one of, why do we suffer? Well, because we're living with other people and they suck. 
something like that. <laughs> he said, actually, civilization itself, living in civilization, is going to make you suffer because, you know, this is what people do. They're such a hassle. And that's true as a cooperative condition, but then we, you know, we try to be like Sherlock Holmes, try to be really investigate who done it, who done it, you know. And is everybody miserable in some civilization? Is everybody miserable when there is when something occurs that would generally be regarded as adversity? And if we really check that out, it's a purely empirical question, not hypothetical or spiritual. Uh, then you find, no, actually, some people suffer enormously with very, very minor adversity. Some people ha suffer hardly at all with enormous adversity. And so that suddenly becomes a lot more interesting. Right? So let's go back to core Buddhism. Why do we suffer? Well, there's a the Tibetan term for it, and that is Zakchit Nyeoralembe Pumbo. These skandhas, these skandhas that, we, that are contaminated, contaminated by influence by karma and klesha, but that we can't do anything about. We've got them, but then how is it that they get to us now? Okay, the past is the past. So this Buddhist worldview, we got this body-mind because of past karma and klesha. But that's water under the bridge. That's done. But right now, what, we can, what can we do about it? Because you know? if we just you know, terminate this body, we'll just get another one. So that's not going to help. And it's that nyewaralemba, that little phrase nyewaralemba, which means closely held. The skandhas, the cycle of the body-mind are closely held. Well, we know what that means, right? Now, in ordinary English, what does it mean, Hosa? Closely held. In ordinary English, what would you say? With grasping, that's definitely true. Claudio, what would be another term? They just ordinary, ordinary language. Grasping, what kind of grasping? Does it mean grasping with the hand, with the teeth? What does it mean, grasping? Attachment, yeah. I'm, I am fishing, identification with. The identification with, you know, that's a really, that's, that's an ordinary term. But I really identify with such and such and such, you know. Well, we know now this means that the sense of I am has extended beyond my core to something I'm identifying with. It's kind of like a kissing cousin of, of empathy. I'm identifying with, oh, I identify with your plight. I identify with the people in Syria, the, the civil war there and so forth. And so identifying with, we're, we're attaching our very sense of identity to it. So that's it. Why do we, baseline, foundational Buddhism 101, <laughs> fundamental foundational Buddhism. It is because we are attached to, we grasp onto, we identify with the body as being either I or really mine. And likewise, the mind, mental processes, emotions, desires, personal history, and so forth, as I or mine, and therefore we suffer. Okay, so that's kind of like try that one on for size. Try that, and then what would be if that's the case? And then of course this is an empirical hypothesis you can put to the test. It's not just some religious belief, you know. You know, like you're supposed to sign on. Then you can say, well, what can you do about that? What can you do about that? We have a couple of strategies. I can say I could really run on here. It's so fascinating, but these are important. And now just straight put it on. You have a couple of strategies. If identifying with the body and mind is really a root, root basis or core of suffering, then here are two strategies. Withdraw from them. Just withdraw from them. Just disengage. Dissociate. Withdraw. Pull in. Pull in. Retreat. Deeper retreat. 
deeper retreat. Retreat into the substrate consciousness. Keep on retreating, form realm. Keep on retreating, formless realm. Get the hell out of it, you know, because that's where all the suffering is. Where do we experience suffering? In the body and in the mind, right? So get out, vacate. Leave an empty body, leave an empty mind, and just get, go deep, burrow, burrow like a gopher. Go deep, deep, deep into the soil of your mind, beyond your mind, of the substrate consciousness. Ooh, nice. And you keep on going. So that's one possibility. Just withdraw. The problem is, of course, it's like you're a gopher going deeper, 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 but there's a string tied to your leg. And, and it just kind of pulls you, it's karma and klesha, it just kind of pulls you out again, and then there you are. So there, that, as a temporary strategy, the gopher with a string on his leg works pretty well, but it's only temporary. The other one, which is not the retreat, but the expedition, is to really deeply explore with a stabilized mind, the very nature of the body-mind, to see as you attend closely to them. So otherwise you're, not, you're doing just the opposite of withdrawing from them. Like, oh, that's where my suffering is. And you're going right into them. And you're going in with a probe. You're going in with a question. Are you really mine or not? Are you really I or mine or not? And I'm going to find out until I have total clarity. And then if you discover that in fact there is nothing whatsoever about any aspect of your brain, of your mind, of your body, brain cells all the way to skin cells and so forth, there's nothing there and you see it, you know it. There's nothing there that is you or yours. And you do the same thing with the mind. Then, if you have that insight, then you can be present with the body and mind and not suffer. Right? So it's said an arhat, for example, never experiences any mental suffering at all. And the physical suffering is just kind of like out there in space, experienced, no general anesthesia, but it doesn't get to him or her. It doesn't get there where it clutches, where it gets to you, where you cringe, where you're afraid. Arhat has no fear, no attachment, no fear. That's a direct correlation. So there's baseline, without going on too long, but there's baseline. So it gives us a strategy. And that means, okay, withdraw for a while in shamatha, and then boomerang back, right back in with this really sharp stiletto type of mind, penetrating insight, vipassana, and really fathom the nature of that which we've been deludedly grasping onto as I and mine, seeing that they are neither I nor mine, and that would be a big step in the right direction, much, much less suffering. So you know whether you're doing it right if you're actually suffering less. Because it's pragmatic. You remember that marvelous dual approach. The epistemological, relative, internal. Is it clearer than it was before? The history of science for the last 400 years. The history of a contemplative, deeper insight, recognizing assumptions earlier that now prove to be false, going deeper, deeper, deeper. But the other one, pragmatic. Are your mental afflictions getting less? Is your suffering getting less? Is your mind becoming more wholesome, more compassionate, happier, and so forth? Two. You get those two coming in, that gets pretty compelling. Then you have really good grounds for knowing whether you're on an authentic path or not. You don't have, it's not just belief, not just adherence to an authority, not just, oh, I'm practicing, I'm, I'm traditional. No, you actually see because of the effects of your practice. But let's go deeper because I want to keep this short. I do want to cover some text today. I will. And so starting there, but then we go to the Heart Sutra. The not only is the self empty, but I can't quite get it exactly, but the five skandhas too. The five skandhas also 
are empty. Not only are the five skandhas empty of you, the five skandhas are empty of five skandhas. They too are not inherently existent. That's kind of like, that's kind of like the impact of quantum mechanics on, on classical physics. That's like, what? You know, you had this kind of nice little nest where there was no one home, there was empty, there was just, you know, the body-mind doesn't have a you in it, and so you're suffering a lot less. And then suddenly the, the ground is taken out from under you. Even the skandhas, my goodness, even the skandhas are nothing more than a conceptual designation. Are you kidding me? What could be more real than your body? So it doesn't have a self in it, big deal, so it just sells and not, they don't belong to me. I feel comfortable with that, but you're telling me I don't have a body? Not really? Not really? And there's no physical universe around, really, from its own side, really there? And I've just been translating this final essay in this anthology of essays. And the author, very good scholar, obviously, really erudite, he said, there is no liberation from samsara until you've understood the nature of existence. Neluk, nature of existence. In other words, it's not enough to realize your skandhas are empty of a self. They're not I or mine. That's fine. Good start. But consider it. Just in just terms of just sheer common sense. The idea here is to bring about very deep liberation. I mean, enormous liberation, irreversible liberation, right, from all of samsara. How would that happen? How could you do that if you're still fundamentally deluded about the nature of samsara as a whole? If you still think that it actually does exist from its own side, by its own nature, that doesn't actually make any sense. That you'll become an, an arhat and never have figured out what's going on, but you're still hanging out there on ar, 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 arhatville? It's really cool. Of course, I never figured it out, but that doesn't matter because I'm feeling good. That, there's just something completely skewed with that. And so that's what the, that's what the Madhyamaka says, Shantikirti says, Mahamudra says, Dzogchen says, Longchen Rajamba says, Tsongkhapa says, there is no liberation from Saram until you figure out what's going on. You have to know the nature of existence, not just that your skandhas are empty of you, but that all phenomena are empty of inherent nature, the skandhas as well. And so if we move there into this Madhyamaka territory, the middle way view, now we're in the perfection of wisdom, up there in the, in the Mahayana view, then now we can ask, what is the, what, why do we suffer? What, what makes for our fundamental vulnerability to suffering? Oh, that's easy. Grasping onto true existence of anything at all. That it's there from its own side, by its own nature, prior to and independent of conceptual or verbal labeling. It's already there. It's metaphysical realism. It's already there, right? So again, in this Madhyamaka view, if you're still reifying, that's grasping to the true existence of. If you're still reifying your body, you're still reifying your body, still reifying your mind. I've got a real mind, and it's I check. It's really a sentient being's mind. In other words, I am inherently a sentient being. Because if you have a, if you have a sentient being's mind, that pretty makes make you a sentient being, right? Then, if you're still reifying the body and mind, then that malarial disease of grasping onto I am as inherently existent is bound to come back. Because the underlying delusion is still there. 
come, come, it's still there. So you really need to fundamentally figure out the great mystery of what's the nature of existence altogether. And not simply withdraw from it, the old shamato approach, but actually venture into it and fathom it. See it for yourself. It's so commonsensical, it seems so obvious that while these appearances, let's say the body, because this is, this is our little intimate universe right here, is that one body of matter in the whole cosmos, the whole universe, that one little domain of space with matter and energy in it, right? We can actually view from the inside and the outside, right? I can look over at Katya and I can see her body from outside, as anybody can, yeah. But that's it. I, and, and if I were a doctor, then I could look at the skin, and I could do x-rays, and I could do blood tests, and so forth, and I could even do surgery and see what's inside, and so forth. But it's all outside, right? But only a Katya knows, apart from people who may be clairvoyant and so forth, but among ordinary beings, only Katya knows. What's it like to be embodied in that body? Unless you have knowledge of somebody else's mind, you know, clairvoyance, that's privileged. That's privileged access, right? So as I mentioned before, you may, be, you may as objectively understand every single molecule in her body as a thought experiment. You could understand every molecule, every cell, right down to elementary particles. And you could know, theoretically, as a thought experiment, you could know how all of them are interrelating. And you still wouldn't know what it's like to be embodied in Katya's body. You wouldn't know what it's like from the inside. So that makes the body very interesting. You know, Nobody knows what it's like to be a cell phone, because even a cell phone doesn't know what it's like to be a cell phone because it doesn't know anything at all, right? So there's a lot of inanimate matter out there that is to be on, known only from the outside. But here's some animate matter, which is per permeated from the inside by consciousness. So when we're experiencing that, which we're going to go to quite, quite shortly, then you've already done it, resting there with your awareness still, clear, illuminating the space of the body, seeing the sensations coming up and up and up and up. You're seeing the phenomenal world of your body from the, from the inside. And if you want to look into a mirror, you can see what does it look like from the outside, too. You can see what other people see. You just see it in a reflection. Or you can see your hands, anyway. Your legs, your chest, you know, you can see part of it, enough. You look in a mirror, you can see the rest, as much as anybody else does, because everybody else is just seeing images anyway. That's what you see in a mirror, that's what other people see in the, in the mirror of their minds, right? But of course, we kind of come back to what seems like common sense. But of course, these sensations, these sensations of solidity, of moisture, of warmth, of motility, earth, water, fire, air, these sensations are being produced by something. They're being produced by something, right? Right? They're, eff they're effects, they're causes. They're, they're effects, they're results. They're being caused by something. And not just by each other laterally, they must be caused by the body, right? The body. The one that is, in fact, made of molecules. Again, we're not refuting that. Made of molecules, made of cells. In other words, all the tremendous advances, advances in physiology, anatomy, brain science, and so forth, genetics, and so forth. We're not denying, we're not denying any of that. This is good science. That's going to remain standing, even after the great torpedoes of Madhyamaka and Mahamudra and Dzogchen have come up and blown the smithereens out of underlying assumptions. The facts of physiology, anatomy, genetics, neuroscience, they're going to st remain standing, right? 
because it's good science, it's good knowledge. But if we ask ourselves, what, objectively speaking, what is causing, what is, what is the basis, what's giving rise to all these, these illusory sensations that I'm experiencing in the space of my body, which is really the space of awareness, what's causing them? What, where are they arising from? And now, largely because scientists, medical doctors, geneticists, neuroscientists, and so forth, have learned so much about the body, then what leaps up as the answer? The body. The body. The body is producing all these sensations, right? The body is producing. I want to say it kind of harder to know that I really mean it. The body, you know, the body that has blood in it and bone and energy and synapses and all those stuff. And that's exactly where the reification comes in. The body. Has anybody actually seen that body? Because when physicians look at it, they're seeing appearances. We have physicians here. When you're looking at a person's body, you're looking at x-rays, you're looking at blood charts, you're looking at all the data that we have. Thanks to excellent science and excellent technology. What are you seeing? You're seeing a bunch of appearances in the visual field. Right? And you may touch, you may t- check temperature, may, you know, and so forth, and getting t- sensations in the tactile field. This real body, the one that's really made of molecules, atoms, cells, and so forth, that is at the basis of all the appearances, the appearances that is the basis, that is giving rise to the visual appearances, giving rise to the auditory appearances, the sounds, giving rise to the tactile sensations, giving rise to the x-rays, giving rise to the evidence, the empirical evidence of blood tests, the real body, the real body, the one that's really there when no one's looking, when nobody's designating, when nobody's labeling, the real body, you know the real body, the one that molders in the grave when you're dead, the real body. That's the real body, right? In Madhyamaka, that's exactly what doesn't exist. That one that's really there. And who's ever seen that? Because all the doctors, physicians, geneticists, neuroscientists, and so forth, what are they actually seeing? They're seeing appearances arising in their own sensory fields. That's what they're seeing. And that's all they ever see. Is there a body? Yeah, of course. Again, we're never (coughs) denying that. But that body that exists inherently, that's never found. I'll give an analogy and then we'll go to the meditation with one final caveat about Dzogchen. But we have this 2015, this contemporary view of the cosmos, where there's so much knowledge, and it's marvelous knowledge, it's superb knowledge, it's going to stand, it's going to withstand by Jabaka, Dzogchen, and so forth, because it's really good knowledge. And yet, as they look at the, the forces that are manifesting, we're seeing the effects of forces within the known universe, of attraction and repulsion, the basic ones, attraction and repulsion, we're finding that in trying to account for, on this cosmological level, the forces of attraction and repulsion, only 5% of them can be accounted for. 95% are unaccounted for. Just you cannot explain them within the context of the known universe, of known 
forces, types of matter, types of energy, and so forth, you cannot explain it. It's not there. There's not enough energy and there's not enough matter by 95% to account for the forces that are manifesting in the known universe. In other words, what's impacting the known universe, 95% of that is unknown. Right? I mean, flat out unknown. That means not known. That means you don't know anything about it. That means you don't know whether it's dark or light, whether it's purple or green. You don't know whether it's matter. You don't know whether it's energy. When you don't know something, you just have to kind of stop and pause there. You don't know. So it's fine, all very fine to put a label out there. Okay, we'll call that one matter, but it's going to be dark. We'll call that one energy, but we'll call it dark. But the bottom line is you don't know. You see what we're doing here as we're trying to find the real body, which nobody actually ever sees, the real one, the inherently existent one. All we're seeing is the effects, but we're looking for the body that's really there that giving rise to the effects, right? As we're looking for 95% of the universe's body that's giving rise to effects here, but we can't see that either. Come back, linger, not right now, but over time, linger with Dharmakirti's analysis that you can never infer fire from smoke if you never ever see fire producing smoke, and if you don't know beyond any reasonable doubt that the only way you can get fire is, you can, only way you can get smoke is with fire. Did I say that too fast? It's really important. Follow the logic. It's Dharmakirti, it's one of the most brilliant that appeared in 2,000 years in Buddhism. If you want to, causal, causal inference is really powerful. And people are using it all over the place, in science, everywhere. But if you are able to truly infer the, exist the presence of fire based upon witnessing, observing smoke, if you're going to be, have that knowledge, not just a guess or a hunch, or there's something called dark fire that nobody's ever seen, you have to have seen fire. And you have to have seen fire producing smoke. And you have to know that smoke can't be produced by anything other than fire. Because if it could, you can say there, there's smoke, but gosh, it could have been called by, caused by marshmallows or leprechauns, or fairies, maybe fire, but you never can tell, because you know, sometimes leprechauns do it, sometimes fairies do it, and sometimes they're just marshmallows. You know, if it were a lot of things, then you could never say, well, we know it's fire, if other things could do it. So you have to see fire doing it, and you have to have great confidence that fire is always necessary. Otherwise, you cannot make that inference. And if you've never, ever seen fire, then you see how completely empty your inference is. There's something called fire, nobody's ever seen it, but we're sure it's that which causes smoke. We're going to call it dark smoke. What exactly has that told you? And why are you pretending you know anything at all? You know. So what we have here is a dark body. Have you ever seen your body? Have you ever seen the body that is producing objectively by its own nature all these sensations you're experiencing? Ever seen it? Has anybody ever seen it? Do you need to have a body to experience sensations? But have you ever seen the body as it exists in and of itself? So as we go to the meditation now, with one little caveat about Dzogchen, we'll be going into the field of sensation, we'll be going into the known universe. The known universe of your body, which you know from the inside. Special, privileged access. You can know like nobody else can know, unless, again, they have clairvoyance. We'll leave those people out for the time being. You're seeing the known universe 
of forces arising here and pressures arising here and discomforts arising there and maybe pleasure on occasion rising there. And it's all coming from the body. What's the nature of that body, the one that's real? What's the nature of that body that's not simply an appearance to the mind? Who's ever seen it? And who's ever seen it produce those appearances? And who can say that a body is necessary for the production of such appearances when nobody's ever seen the body as an inherently existent phenomenon? So we'll end with Dzogchen, since we're on this direct trajectory to Mahamudra, and Mahamudra so so profoundly similar to Tekchut, the first major phase of Dzogchen practice. Well, if I ask the question for a final, a third and final time, why are we suffering? And I love this one because it's so short. And it so dovetails in with everything else that I've commented on thus, thus far. Here's the answer. Why do we suffer? Because we identify with that, we identify with that which is neither I nor mine as being I or mine, such as my body and my mind, but also my property, my family, my ethnic group, my country, my hemisphere, and so forth. So that's half of it, but that's only half. And here comes the unique part. If it's not unique, well, it's distinctive. We suffer because we're identifying as I and mine that which is neither I nor mine. In other words, we're delusional. Right? That is delusion. And the other half of it is and because we fail to recognize who we actually are. That one. Well, I'll add to that, what's the difference between a sentient being and a Buddha? Anybody? You've heard it? Yes, Elizabeth. One man should live on the other side. Who's who? <laughs> 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 yeah, there it is. Sentient beings, we don't know who we are. The Buddhists, the Buddhists do. They know who they are. The sentient beings don't. We're still caught up in this illusory dream of thinking that we're sentient beings. But think about psychotherapy. Think about a person who has a major, major personality disorder. You know, uh, thinks he's Napoleon or something like that. You know, some. You know, he's got it wrong. Well, if a person's walking around, I often do this. It's a little, it's a little cartoon. It's silly, and I'm not going to do it this time. But you're walking around, strutting around, thinking you're Napoleon because you know you're out of your mind. And the psychotherapist is going to take you on and try to heal you. And your name is actually George Smith, and you're a retired carpenter. So not very close to Napoleon. Well, rather than, I think, the psychotherapist, and having no training whatsoever as a psychotherapist, I'm just going to jump in. Rather than immediately trying to persuade this person, George Smith, George, you're, you're not Napoleon, you're not, well, never mind Napoleon, you're a carpenter, you're a carpenter. And George got, I beg your pardon, I am not, I am not a carpenter. Yes, his French accent so well done. <laughs> Probably wouldn't try to do that. Because he's totally company, but, but of course I am Napoleon. So what is this bullshit <laughs> about being carpenter? You know, I'm not carpenter. You know? You're not persuading me. You have no so you give me some hammer, I hit you on the head. You know? So you're not gonna persuade him because he knows who he is. He's he's Napoleon. So you actually have to get him to recognize he's not Napoleon first. And only when that's completely demolished, then you can. Now, do you remember getting your carpenter training? Do you, do you remember? Do you remember you built that, built these chairs over here? Do you remember? 
But you need to knock down that which isn't true first before you can introduce that which is true. You need to loosen up and see through the illusion that you really are a sentient being. This is really your mind. This is really your body. Before you can see, oh, who are you? And not be caught in between. Well, I'm Napoleon, but I do carpentry on the side. <laughs> <laughs> I am Avalokiteshvara, but I'm also Stanford PhD. <laughs> you don't do that. <laughs> the clean out one before you bring in the other one. And it has to go deep. It has to saturate every part of your life. Which leads to one joke, and then we go to meditation. I've told it many times, but I can't resist. Because <laughs> it's such a cool joke. So, prepared. So there was this farm boy. And the farm boy had a very strange psychosis. He didn't think he was Napoleon. He didn't think he was Cleopatra. He thought he was a kernel of corn, a little grain of corn. Strange psychosis. Very strange. But he was persuaded of that. And so his parents, you know, he's always thinking he's a grain of corn, kernel of corn. So his parents send him off to a mental asylum. What can you do? Your boy, your boy thinks he's corn. So he spends some months or weeks and he gets lots and lots of therapy. And finally, you know, his psychiatrist releases him. Little Johnny is now cured. He's, he's fine. He no longer thinks he's a kernel of corn. So he sends him home, back to the farm. The parents are a little bit nervous wondering whether he's really cured or not. And so they, he comes in and the parents are kind of a little bit anxious. Johnny, you don't stink, still think you're a kernel of corn, do you? He said, no, nah, Mom, I know I'm not a kernel of corn. I know, I know. So they're kind of relieved and the days go by and everything seems quite normal. Until one day, little Johnny was outside and he comes running in the door, slams the door behind him. He's trembling. He's having really a panic attack, like just freaking out. Poor little boy. And the, Parents come, Johnny, what's wrong? You don't, you, don't, you don't think you're a kernel of corn again, do you? He said, no, but those chickens out there don't know that. <laughs> it's still worth it. Well, it's, it's a pretty cool joke. Because it has to go all the way down. It can't be a little nuclear, a little internally contained thing. It has to be an insight that works when you're out with the chickens. You can connect the dots, you know? The insight's here, inside, inside Araluan, very good. But the insights you gain, gain here, are they going to still hold when you leave Araluan and you're out there with the chickens? <laughs> or will you, will you think you're a kernel of corn again? <laughs> so let's practice now. And then we will get to the text a bit and bring this, this week to a close. recall when you're engaging in this initial settling, this initial balancing act, the statement by the Buddha, 
that is quoted throughout, I think, probably all Buddhist traditions, and that is, the mind that rests in a state of equilibrium comes to know reality as it is. So settle your body, speech, and mind in a state of dynamic equilibrium that we call settling them in their natural state. just for a couple of minutes, calm the mind, releasing that turbulent energy that manifests in a turbulent mind. Release it with every outbreath. Be aware of the sensations associated with the respiration as they manifest throughout the entire somatic field, the whole field breathing, the whole field fluctuating in terms of the energy that is present, that permeates the field. And now let's cross the continental divide from shamatha, the mere settling of the mind, the calming of the mind. Cross the divide over into the expedition of inquiring into the nature of our experience, the world of experience. You know very well that when you see a rainbow, the mere fact that you see it doesn't make you think, that's my rainbow. Or you hear the sound of a bird. You don't think that's my sound. You smell something, my smell, my taste. 
You're simply experiencing it. You know that doesn't make it yours. So for four out of the five domains, sensory domains, we can see quite clearly there's simply phenomena arising in space. Colors, sounds, smells, tastes. But now let's focus in on this somatic field, the space of the body. Can you experientially distinguish between simply witnessing the various sensations arising in this field as you witness colors or sounds versus experiencing the sensations as really mine? After all, because they're taking place within my body. The sounds are out there, the smells are out there, the colors are out there, but this, these sensations are in my body. Therefore, my sensations, my territory. We know there's a nominal truth to that. Of course, it's not somebody else's body. But now to examine the nature of that truth. In what sense is this true? What makes these sensations yours? Is it from their side or from your side? Examine the nature of your experience of these sensations and examine the nature of grasping, of closely holding, of identifying with. Continue probing, continue raising questions within this somatic field for which you have a privileged access. No one else can see what you're seeing right now. The insider's view on your body. Do you see anything here within this somatic field that suggests it's actually you, that you're in this field? Can you identify anything that even suggests it might be you.
the space of the body can be likened to a room. You can see the whole room. You can see the whole space. And if you're in this room, you, the referent of the word you, if you're in this room, you should be able to find yourself. So look carefully. Are you in this room? Or is this room empty of you? Empty of self, personhood, an individual, I. The colors you see in the visual field don't belong to anyone. They're simply arising in space. These tactile sensations arising in the space of the body, do they really belong to anyone? Or are they as ownerless as sounds, smells, and tastes?
in terms of observing a configuration of matter and energy, this is about as intimate as it gets. Because we ourselves can observe our bodies from outside, but we also have this privileged access of observing the body directly from the inside. But where within this somatic field do you find anything whatsoever that is actually material? Where do you find an atom, a particle? Where do you find matter? All of the sensations arising in the space of your mind, which is non-physical, how can there be anything physical in a space that itself is non-physical? You're observing your body from the inside, and yet there is no materiality here. No matter, no energy, no physical space, mental space, and empty appearances arising to awareness. strange that the most intimate, direct, insider's view of a configuration of mass energy reveals no mass or energy, but only sensations, appearances that are neither matter nor energy. We're not here to refute a body made of molecules, cells. We're not here refuting any of the wonderful knowledge from physiology, genetics, and so on. But if there is a real body, in real physical space, composed of real atoms, real cells, bone, flesh, inherently real, objectively existent. Hold that thought. Hold that thought of how you reify the body, the body that you reify, the body that is real and inherently existent, your body. Hold that thought. The one that is objectively real. And then ask, Where is that objectively real body made of real atoms and cells? Is it inside? 
this somatic field we've been attending to? If so, we should see it. This real body, is it outside the somatic field? You see it visually, but all that appears to vision is visual appearances. Do you hear it? Sounds arising in the space of the mind. Whoever sees your real body, the one that exists by its own characteristics, from its own side, that's real, doesn't exist inside this somatic field and is nowhere to be found outside this somatic field, where does it, where does it exist? think of this real body, the real one made out of molecules, what comes to mind? Does it have a color? But the colors are in the space of your mind, they're not in the nature of molecules. What comes to mind apart from more appearances? Memories of visual appearances, tactile appearances. When you've ex ever experienced the body as it exists in and of itself, this body that gives rise to all these appearances, this idol of the body, that gives rise to appearances but is uninfluenced by appearances, Who's ever seen that body?
when some insight arises that this body is empty of you and empty of yours, rest in that awareness, in that knowing. And when some insight arises that this matrix of appearances tactile, visual, and so on, is empty of any real body, objectively existent, inherently real. When you sense that it's empty, no such body is to be found. Rest in that knowing, quietly. So we'll be soon having our little miniature weekend, one-day weekend. And so this makes for a very smooth segue to that final line of Atisha in the seven-point mind training, when you've done the formal meditation and emptiness, and you're getting off the cushion. And you remember what he said, between sessions act as an illusory being. No real body, just appearance, like a ghost like an apparition. should be a little bit easier. So now let's finally return to the text. And it should be quite easy, I think, when you, as we listen to it, receive the oral transmission, it might seem immediately familiar, like you hopefully kind of get what he's saying. So we're on page 87, as I recall. 
And as I recall, the last thing we read was something like this, towards the top of 87, when there is the self, this is from the commentary on verifying com- uh, cognition, when there is the self, there is the discernment of others. Okay? As soon as there's this reification of self, then as an, like an echo, there's the discernment and then the reification of others. Grasping and hatred occurred towards the factions of self and other, and in relation, in relation to those, all mental afflictions arise. So that was a profound diagnosis right there. The King of Samadhi Sutra says, the Samadhi Raja Sutra says, due to the concept of self, not just the concept of self, of course, it's that reification of self, mental distraction arises and it blazes like a wheel of weapons, throwing out sparks of mental afflictions in all directions. Following after objects defeats the mind, and this causes the ripening of unbearable suffering. Perfection of Wisdom Sutra in 100,000 Santa say form is empty of eye and mind. Form here again, not just visual form, form here as in all appearances, all appearances, empty of eye and mind. And again from the same sutra, and due to grasping onto eye and onto mind, sentient beings revolve in samsara. So just hammering the same nail deeper and deeper. A guide to the Bodhisattva way of life states, if all the harm, fear, and suffering in the world occur due to grasping onto the self, which is exactly the reification of the self, what use is that great demon to me? And he continues, without forsaking one's own self, without releasing, without seeing through this delusional sense of I am, without forsaking one's own self, one cannot avoid suffering just as one cannot stop being burned without avoiding fire. Reminds me of the, the fire sermon where the Buddha said, the whole world is ablaze, the whole world's ablaze, with the afflictions of delusion, craving, and hostility. The root of I and mine must be cut. So now, this happens only with Vipassana. Not with visualization, not with faith, not with discipline, not with samadhi. It has to be in sight. If delusion is the problem, the only antidote is to cut through the delusion. The only way to cut through it is with insight, with knowing. The root of I and mine must be cut, and since the root of I and mine arises from the aggregate of form, you must examine in this aggregate where the I and self exist and how the I and self exist. Okay, so here as a, he's speaking as a human being to human beings. This is Shantideva, this is Kamachamed actually. He's speaking from human being to human being, and that is our very sense of I and mind is rooted in our embodiment here. Our embodiment. We're grasping onto I, and this is my form. Your form is not my form. And so therefore, examine within this aggregate where the I, where are you to be found, where the self exists, and how the I and self exist. Okay, so we kind of did that. Nagarjuna says, as long as there's grasping onto the aggregates, as long as you're grasping onto your body and mind, together with that, there is grasping onto the eye. If there is, if there is grasping onto the eye, there is karma. There's also karma, and due to that, there is birth. So these are just, just incredibly dense diagnoses of the origins of suffering. And it makes that point I made earlier. It was alluded to in the Heart Sutra, and that is not enough to see that your aggregates are empty of self, of I am. Because as long as there's grasping onto the aggregates, as long as there's reification of the aggregates, grasping onto your body as being really there, really there, and not 
And again, I keep this, this middle way. It can be a bit confusing at the beginning. Because they keep on saying, we're not refuting neurons, we're not refuting liter liver and cells and bones and tissue and all the things that medical doctors know about so well. We're not refuting physiological processes, the role of the nervous system, the brain. We're not refuting any of that. But then how can that not be real? If we're not refuting that, then how can that not be real? As in inherently existent, objectively existent, out there in the real world, in contrast to our mere subjective appearances, which are totally illusory and kind of like neither here nor there. Because that's what a materialist will tell us. And we understand why. So say, so you're having all these sensations in your body. They're just completely illusory and they're irrelevant. Because what matters is, hey, what's happening in your brain? Your nervous system, your endocrine system, your, you know, what's, that's, that's where the, all the action is. You're just seeing epiphenomena. You're just seeing vapor. You're just seeing hallucinations, mirages. We medical doctors will tell you what's really going on because we're looking at your real body and all you're getting is these illusory feelings. We're going to understand the why they say that. That's not, that's not crazy. We know so that is medical establishment, the scientific community now know so, knows so much, and it's good knowledge about this body. But what we fail, we easily overlook is that all that knowledge is arising relative to measurements. Relative to a conceptual framework. And it is true relative to those measurements and relative to those conceptual framework. But the notion that that construct, that conceptual designation, that theory, that image, that what comes to mind when we think, as some people are very well informed about anatomy and physiology, what comes to mind when we think of the body is something that does exist relative to all the measurements that were made. But of course, if you make other measurements, like for example, if you become a highly accomplished yogi, and you develop samadhi and you practice state regeneration, and you don't even have a thermometer let alone all the other marvelous technology that modern science has, but you go into that body with samadhi power. You go into it with the sophistication of stage regeneration practice. You're not going to come out with any theories about the hippocampus or genetics. You're not going to come out with any theory about that at all. What you'll come out with is a very elaborate, detailed, empirically testable theory of chakras and nadis and bindus and pranas of five primary types and five secondary types, elaborate, and moreover, they apply that to medicine and they're healing people every day all over the planet. With herbal compounds, with various types of treatments that are exactly designed to treat the body as they've understood it. But now, would the real body please stand up? Because the medical doctors, they can't find a single chakra. Nor can they find the nodes that are, you know, are commonly accepted and widely used in Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine. They can't find the humors of Ayurveda. They can't find them anywhere. So if we're going to really approach this without bias, so, well, I'm not just going to accept the medical because I'm white, because I'm born in California. I, mean, I don't want to be that stupid. These people who had their Chinese medicine, Tibetan Ayurvedic, you know, they're not a bunch of Neanderthals. They're not stupid people. They're not ignorant people. This is not Gajuna we're talking about. This is some of the greatest sages in India and Tibet, China, 
These are their brilliant ones. These are their Newtons, their Einsteins, and so forth. They've come up with these theories. So let's not be too fast, which the medical system does all the time. Oh, but that's folk medicine. That's folk medicine. Racism here is just in your face. But we don't have to suffer from that. I think very few people here do. But now, which one's the right one? Which one's the right one? The one with the chakras and the nadis and the wind and the bile and the phlegm and the five elements and the humors and all this kind of stuff and balance this with this and and develop your 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 tumo, you know develop your develop your tumo and you kind know, of develop that with visualization and so forth. That one, or I think you need a blood another blood test. You know, which one's the right one? Because these are. These look like, you know, like a giraffe and a kangaroo. I mean, these look like just very different entities. So which one's true? Or do we just be, you know, racist? And we can be racist either side. Oh, what do those medical doctors know? They're a bunch of materialists. That means they're completely deluded. Forget what they say. Come back and we'll, we'll take your pulse again. Better yet, we'll do a divination. That's a possibility. Or we can say, oh, never mind all that hocus-pocus of these alternative medicines. Unscientifically tested, blah, blah, blah. So we can go one, of the, one way or the other. But you know what's shouting at my mind right now? Light. Light. Come on, we have good science now. Now tell me, I want to know the real nature of light. Is it a particle or is it a field? Because one thing cannot be a particle in a field. Every scientist knows that. They have totally different attributes. If you're a particle, you're discrete. You're like a BB. You're like a little pebble. You move like a little, like that. You're a, be- you're a bullet. A photon is a bullet, whereas a wave is spread out, it has wave properties, it's not a bullet at all. So you can't be a bullet and a wave. You can't be a photon and an electromagnetic field. Cannot be, not possible. So would the physicists please get their act together? You know, we have physics and we have alternative physics. <laughs> you know, we have classical physics that says, you know, James Cook Maxwell, light is a wave, it's a field. He had the, the mathematics nailed, he understood it very well. And then we have Einstein coming in and talking about photons, alternative physics, alternative optics. So, okay, James Cook Maxwell, please, you sit here, and Einstein, would you please work it out, you know, because you can't both be right. It's either a particle or a wave. Would you please, you know, set us straight? What is the nature of light, really? And the answer is, there is no answer to that question. Because light can only be understood relative to your measurement. Do this measurement, it is a particle. Do it this measurement, it is a field. No one can, one thing can be a field and a particle, but they are both relatively true. There's very good photon physics and very, very good field physics. And they're not the same, and they're both true relative to the system measurement. So where I stand, as I take, because, of my, because I, I would have been dead if I had, didn't have Western medicine, probably at the age of two, and I would be dead at the age of 23 if I didn't have Tibetan medicine. So I'd be dead either way if I didn't have both. Right? Dead at 23 at the latest. So it makes me a believer. So I have to say, well, as much as I, I do deeply respect Western medicine, so much knowledge, it's fantastic, I just can't regard that as the one true reality. Remember what Hilary Putnam said. Remember what he said for metaphysical realism. It's out there and it lends itself to one description because that's the right description. Do you remember that? It's really out there, so there's one description that will tell you like what it's it really like out there prior to an independent of your measurement. But it can't be a system of wind, bile, and phlegm and the five elements, chakras, bindus, and nadis 
So which is it? I think right there is some pretty compelling evidence. The body is not inherently composed of the three humors, the five elements, or wind, bindus, and nadis, not inherently, nor is it inherently made of tissue, blood, bone, genetics, and so forth. Neither one inherently. Both are true. As, yes, light from this perspective is a particle, light from this perspective is a field. Neither one is absolutely true. Neither one has objective existence. Neither one is inherently real. Which means you can start choosing your reality. Very cool. Times ago in Okidoki, let's go. The sutra of basket weaving, those who are attached to ideation concerning form, and so on, always regard the self as a static entity. Powerful statement. That, you remember what Bishop Barclay said about just attending to the phenomena nakedly. And if we go right, slip right over to Buddhism immediately, when we attend to these phenomena, the sensations arising in the body, you must have noticed that it's all fizzing, it's all, it's all dynamic, it's all moving, there's nothing stable, there's no rocks in that stream, it's all stream. But then when you think of your body, welcome to staticville, welcome to snapshot. You don't think of your body. When you think of your body, you don't think of something that's fizzing, changing from moment to moment, getting older and older from my moment to moment. You know, you look at, oh my goodness, I'm looking older. How did that happen? How did that happen? Because you know, it was static, static, and then, ooh, getting old, you know. So static, static, and then shock, you know. And then static, static, and then shock. That's because we're deluded almost all the time because all of our ideas are static. And then we reify them, and then we're totally deluded. You know, thinking your kernel of corn looked like pretty tame stuff compared to this. So static entity, the continuum of their births, does not end, and they descend drastically to the miserable destinations. So he just said how you perpetuate your own samsara. It is more, now we go to the, uh, this wonderful, it's called set of aphorisms. This is the Sanskrit and the Tibetan version of Dhammapada. Dhammapada from the Pali. This is very closely corresponds. But this is Sanskrit, and then, uh, yeah, it was Gareth, Gareth Baram, a very good translator and scholar. He translated this into English. So, it is more important to subdue your own mind than it is to subdue elephants, wild horses, and wild mules. Even more important than subduing materialists or republicans. <laughs> no, 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 that, that, was, that, was in, that was in the footnote. <laughs> and it is better to conquer self-grasping than to conquer an army of a hundred thousand soldiers. Okay, the set of aphorisms, okay, the inter-Tibetan Dhammapada states, it is better to subdue yourself than to subdue the mightiest of elephants, the superb horses of Sindhu, and young mules. You who well subdue yourselves, cut your fetters and are liberated, whereas those with mounts, whereas with, with those mounts, it is impossible to achieve that state. So you may master all fields of science and technology, but if you've not mastered your mind, you're still stuck all kinds of mastery over the external resources of the world, the brain, and so forth and so on, is still not free. You who engage in the discipline should subdue only yourselves as you would a, a, as you would a fine horse. By well subduing yourself, you go beyond suffering. Here's this famous line. You alone are your master. You alone are your refuge. So subdue yourself.
upon one seat and with one teacher of the path, live alone without lassitude. Dwelling alone in the forest, subdue yourself in solitude. Those who gain victory over themselves are more victorious in, in the battle of men than those who conquer a, thousand, a host of thousands. So this type of terminology comes up throughout all of Buddhism. Pali Canon, Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana, everywhere. The, the battle, the battle analogy. We, we can like it or lump it, but it is there. And it wasn't later people added to the Buddha's teachings. He was the one the Buddha called those who have achieved liberation arhats. That's a person who has destroyed his, destroyed his foes. An arhat is a da, jomba. Da is your enemy. Jomba means <coughs> crushed him. So that kind of military analogy, it's here. But very rarely, happily, very rarely in Buddhist history has that been turned to you know, religious wars, sectarianism all over the place, nasty. In Tibetan Buddhism, Japanese Buddhism, Indian Buddhism, that's certainly, Buddhism not innocent of that. But you know, millions of Buddhists rising up to wage war against Hindus to convert them all and wipe them out if they won't, relatively okay, you know, even with all this military analogy. So an arhat is a, is a foe destroyer. A jina, an epithet of the Buddha, is a conqueror. Okay? This term comes up. And you look at Shantideva, it's all over the place. Military analogies, military analogies. But always, and maybe, maybe it's because they use them so often. And every time they use them, they tell you exactly what they mean. That it's not infidels, it's not non-Buddhists, it's not Hindus, it's not materialists, it's not communists. Since they use it so often, and every single time they use it, they tell you exactly what the enemy is. Maybe that's why Buddhism is relatively free of religious wars and genocide and so forth. Relatively. Not spick and span, but relatively. Because the enemies are always seen as being inside and to be conquered, to be overcome, not to be accepted and develop a comfortable relationship, which is what a lot of New Age namby-pamby Buddhism would have us believe. Get comfortable with your mental afflictions. They're not, not that bad. Baloney. So... Now you must examine whether the I and the self. So he's, thus far he's really been focusing on the self-grasping and the reification of self, self, self. And now he's going to move to the body, the relationship between I am and my body. So now you must examine whether the I and self are the body or the mind. That is, if you're here, I mean, it's just straight now, razor-sharp logic. It's logic of the Buddha, logic of Nagarjuna, and so forth. And that is, if you're here, if you're really here, if you are really someone, if you're really someone that we're going to take seriously, when we say Rhonda, there's a referent to that word, and she's really over there, which is, seems pretty commonsensical. But if she's not there, then she's not here at all, right? So if Rhonda's really here, then she must be right where her body is. It would be totally weird if her body was there and she was three feet to the right. <laughs> You'd always be, hello, Rhonda. How are you doing, Rhonda? I'm looking at nothing, but, you know, that would be totally weird. So, if Rhonda's really here, she's got to be where her body is. And, and since she's got a mind, and that's got what's animating the body, she's got to be where her body and mind are. If they're in the same place, that makes it easier. But if Rhonda's really there, she's got to be in that system, body-mind system. Got to be. The notion that the body-mind system's there and Rhonda's someplace else, well, number one, there's no, there's just, it's kind of irrational and anti-empirical. So we don't really need to dwell there. So that's why he says, 
Now you must examine whether the I and self are the body or the mind. If she's there, then what are you? Body, mind, both, neither, what? So he says, my name is given adventitiously. So my parents called me Bruce, and yet they never called me Bruce. <laughs> they just like the name. <laughs> just like the name. They like Bruce Allen Wallace, but never like Bruce. So I don't know. So I wound up calling me called Allen. So when everybody, anybody calls me Bruce, I know they, know don't, they, they don't know me. When I get emails, hello, Bruce. I say, yeah, hello, stranger. <laughs> you don't know who I am. <laughs> so that's a total vacuous, you know, that's like a reference with, there's nobody there. Not even my parents thought I was Bruce. They still call me Bruce. <laughs> Threw me a, a curveball. So my name is given adventitiously. There's nothing in Tibetan. All the Tibetans know that. When somebody says, who are you? It's very easy to say, I'm Amy. Tibetans say, who are you? Keran Suyimba. Alan Who are you? I'm called Alan. Roya. Yeah, who are you? You don't say, I am Alan. That's like saying, I am a name. Well, which one? Alan? Nobody knows. Which? Or Wallace. Maybe I'm Wallace. No, I'm not a name. I'm a human being. I'm not a name. Names are what you find in the dictionary. Human beings you find here, right? <laughs> so I'm not a name, right? I'm a human being. So therefore, I'm not Alan. Alan is a sound. Alan. <laughs> you know? I'm not a sound. I'm called a certain sound. They say, if it was a kangaroo, <laughs> you know, that's Alan and kangaroos, I think. I haven't tried that, actually. If my name is Shane, so they, they just call Alan. This is so obvious when it comes to Western names, because Alan has about as much meaning as schmorfel. I checked. That actually means something, but who knows and who cares? You know, it's just it's, it's noise. This is why I don't remember Western names. Somebody says, hello, my name is Jiangsem. Oh, yeah, got it. That means something. My name is Deke, got it. My name is Gachi, got it. My name is Jungju, got it. My name is Nina. What? <laughs> What's Lina? I have no Lina, no Li. I have no just noise. That's why I don't remember names very well. So there it is. So it's adventitious. And it's just it's just now that somebody says, Hello, your name is your name is Suzanne. Your name is <laughs> <laughs> There's no difference. Hello, my name is <laughs> It could be. We just haven't agreed on that. <laughs> if my name is changed, do I change? If I'm given a good name, do I become good? Like Zhang Sen, did she suddenly become a lot better? Oh, I'm Bodhisattva. <laughs> or, you know, my, my right arm in Santa Barbara Institute is Kasange. Buddha. I've got a Buddha as my right arm. <laughs> my left arm is, <laughs> I don't know. We've got, we've got to be good if it's going to be good as my right arm. So if you have a good name, does that be, do I become good? And if I'm given a bad name? Hello, my name is Asshole. <laughs> does it somehow make me worse? Hmm? So does that make me bad? Well, <laughs> is this body, I, and the self? Is the body a person? Dissect this form into its components and look for the self among the individual parts of the body from the head to the feet. Also look for it carefully. This is right back to the Pali Canon, right back to the Satipatthana Sutta. This is core foundational teaching of the Buddha. If you think your body is you, good. Check it out. And now do the old-fashioned way, the physiology way. Spleen, brain cells, 
skin, hair, mucus, you know, just check yourself out. Which one of those is you? He's doing this now in, in the Mahamudra context. Dissect this form into its components and look for the self among the individual parts of the body, from the head to the feet. Also look for it carefully among each of the areas inside the body. Maybe you're up in the upper part, or the middle part, or the lower part. Moreover, come to a firm conviction as to where it might exist, where you might exist among the external elements of earth, water, fire, air. If you're really there, then okay. You're physical? Good. Which one? Back to Bodhicharavatara, a guide of the Bodhisattva way of life states, first, with your own intellect, now this is that sharp intellect, your intelligence, first, with your own intellect, peel off the sheath of skin. Okay, just imagine, it's a thought experiment, he's not actually <laughs> talking about self-mutilation here. But thought experiment, just imagine taking off, you know, and leaving that pile of skin. So sometimes women especially, because my wife really takes wonderful care of her skin, yes, beautiful skin. And so with women who really take care of themselves a lot, a man might say, you just have lovely skin. It's nice, right? Lovely skin. And so the woman, she's a Buddhist, she says, oh, really? Well, if you like it, I'll just, I'll just show you the skin all by itself. And you, huh? Huh? Like, you know, like peeling a tuna can or a can of sardines. Just, and then, would you like some of it? <laughs> As you can see, all her capillaries and so forth, you know, the body with no skin. Um, which part did you like exactly? Because you know? th- this is what you just said was so lovely. Just a handful of skin. The young people, young men should definitely listen to this. <laughs> It really takes some of the glamour out of she's so beautiful. <laughs> if she's beautiful, then just take the skin off and see the more beautiful part inside. <laughs> oh, yeah. So peel off the sheath of skin with the knife of wisdom and extract the flesh from the skeleton. So take off the skin and then you know, pull out the flesh. And so you just have a nice skeleton, a beautiful skeleton. You have such fine bones. <laughs> 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 Marvelous cheekbones. I love your cheekbones. <laughs> Having severed the bones, look inside at the marrow and examine for yourself, where is the essence here? Is anybody home? Is there anybody in here? The stanzas of the, the Madhyamaka root, text, root of wisdom, Nagarjuna, if the aggregates were the self, the body or the mind were the self, it would be subject to creation and destruction. That is, you as a, as a person would be arising and falling with the passing of every thought, every, every shift in the body. On the other hand, if you... If it, the you, the self, were other than the aggregates, it would lack the characteristics of the aggregates. So either if you're the same as aggregates, then you're, mo- you're shifting momentarily with every thought, every emotion, every desire. You're being reborn. I mean, you're constantly, if you're the same, always. You can never grab a hold of yourself because you're always just like that. And the body, of course, is in constant dynamic change. So you can never get a handle on yourself because you're always changing. By the time you recognize yourself, you're already history. On the one hand, on the other hand, if no you are something separate from body and mind, then you wouldn't have any physical characteristics or any mental characteristics, because it would just be you. In other words, you could take away Hosa's body here and a mind over there, and then you would just see Hosa. You know, just Hosa. Not the body or mind. She has a body and mind, right? But just set the body over here and the mind over there and said, oh, that's Hosa, the real you. That would be interesting. Naked Hosa. <laughs> Interesting. As this is explained at great length, there is no self in this body. 
For by dissecting the body into its components, nowhere is there even a trace of an, ev- of an essence that is called I or self. So, we have a few more days for this chapter. I've been kind of trying to mm, pace it. So we just finished with the body. Pretty quick work. And then he's going to go to the mind and be asking very deep questions about the nature of the mind. But that will be for next week. And so as we have our, our day just to focus on practice, just bring it all together. Bring it all together. But now is really a time to let the whatever insights are coming really start seeping into our view. It's not enough, of course, just to learn about it, think about it, that was fun, and then back to business as usual. The whole point is not to get a bunch of right beliefs that you carry around like baggage, but if you're gaining insights, it should actually start shifting the way you're viewing yourself. You know? And that's where the juice is. The view shifts, the revolution starts. Like that. So, at daytime, daytime practice, Nighttime practice. Probably enough for now. So good. Let's see. Yeah. Relax and enjoy practicing Dharma. That's all you have to do tomorrow. Nothing. Very good. See you then. <laughs>